0: There were some very tough trading days for stocks this week, with tech stocks taking it the hardest as consumers and investors adjust to the post-pandemic economy. Wall Street Journal data shows the Nasdaq Composite down 27% from January 1st, while the Dow Jones was down 12%, and the S&P 500 stands down about 17.5% from January 1. In this edition of Commerce Code, is the economy waking up with a post-COVID credit hangover? A conversation with Dr. Emre Shahinger of Vantage Score. Dan Carell here, and this is Commerce Code, brought to you by DCA, the Digital Commerce Alliance. Thanks for joining us for insights into the evolving world of digital commerce. While tech stocks suffered, cryptocurrencies had an even harder time this week. Bitcoin, Ether, and Dogecoin, three leading cryptocurrencies, are down 39%, 48%, and 52% respectively on the year, having lost nearly all of that value just in the last month. A leading stablecoin, USD, fell hard from its $1 peg, a market had maintained consistently since its launch in 2020. On Monday and Tuesday of this week, the currency wobbled. On Wednesday and Thursday, it crashed, trading as low as $0.30 cents on the dollar. Predictably, renewed calls to regulate crypto products came in the wake of this week's volatility. Some big players are believed to have taken big losses. Japan's SoftBank reportedly lost $26 billion in the tech sell-off, and The Wall Street Journal reported this week a $17 billion loss at Tiger Funds, a major tech-focused hedge fund. In data privacy news, Google announced in a blog post Wednesday that it's rolling out a way for individuals to remove results that contain their contact information. Specifically, the tool is meant to allow people to remove their phone number, home address, or email address from Google search. In consumer news, April's consumer price index rise was lower than March, but still very high. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reported April's increase at three tenths of a percent compared to 1.2 percent in March but the 12-month increase total sits at 8.3%. The impact of this inflation on consumer psychology and behavior has been seen in a range of contexts, from more canceled subscription services to increased risk indicators coming up in credit scores among certain consumer segments. Today on the show, we're going to dive deeper into the post-pandemic consumer credit analysis by speaking with Dr. Emre Shahanger of VantageScore. Vantage score is a consumer credit score model development company, where Emre is Senior Vice President of Predictive Analytics, Research, and Product Management. Emre, thank you so much for joining us again on Commerce Code. Where are you joining us from today?
1: Hi, Dan. Great to be here. I'm joining from Philadelphia.
0: Great. So really interesting topic today. I'm looking forward to the conversation. In the latest data from VantageScore, I understand that you're starting to see some increased risk indicators in certain consumer segments, and I'd just love to learn more about that.
1: Initially, there was a lot of concern about consumers really not being able to keep up with all of the additional financial burdens due to the economic disruptions and everything that happened with the pandemic. So all eyes were really looking to see signs of things To many people's surprise, what's been happening for the good majority of the pandemic period is that consumers actually have done quite well when you look at their overall credit performance. In fact, the overall credit scores through the pandemic increased by about 12, 13 points, which is pretty meaningful. More recently, what we started observing is that usage patterns have started to go back to normal. And also what we are seeing is that the may be maybe also starting to come back up again. When you start diving into more specific consumer segments, we do see that there are some signs, perhaps, that certain segments like younger consumers or lower income consumers starting to see some faster worsening, perhaps, in their credit performance. Something to pay attention to, certainly.
0: I'm wondering what might be driving this, what sort of the trends suggest, is it related to the job types that these people have? Is it related to some other factor I'm not thinking of?
1: Certainly, there are a variety of potential explanations worth discussing in terms of these increasing delinquency levels. Certainly, the younger consumers will have more limited cushions to really absorb unexpected events happening. Certainly the observation around low income consumers sort of provide a uh, supporting viewpoint on that. It might be the type of jobs they're in, perhaps gig economy versus more stable jobs. So there's a number of different things that suggests that these consumers may be at a higher risk in terms of really how they would react to changes in economic conditions. And you know we all have been hearing the news about rising inflation rates. You know everything is a little bit more expensive now. So your ability to service your debt obligations, as well as sort of keep Keeping up with your new purchases have gotten a little worse for everyone. And if you're on the lower end of the spectrum in terms of your income and your sort of financial capacity, you're going to get more impacted sooner for sure.
0: So the Econ 101 of inflation is that debtors benefit from inflation simply because as their incomes rise, and we've seen that very much at the level of service employees, but if the debt is still denominated in nominal terms and if the interest rate isn't variable, then you know, their debt in effect gets cheaper. But in the short run, as I think you've just described, it can really create a pinch both on you know just because cost of living is higher. Is that essentially
1: right? you're absolutely right if it's a fixed rate product, then over time, the value of that outstanding certainly shrinks. But in case of credit card debt, for example, where your interest rate may be pegged to a variable rate as the inflation goes higher, as rates go higher, certainly the cost of servicing that debt is going to be also more difficult. So one interesting point that we've been seeing is that when you look at use of personal loans, for example, which tend to have more fixed interest Interest rates compared to credit cards where the rate is typically variable. We've been seeing a resurgence in installment loans, like personal installment lending recently. Typically, one way borrowers have utilized these products for, let's say, debt consolidation, like putting a number of higher interest cards into a single personal loan obligation, have a fixed term, fixed rate, and sort of budgeted out that way. So we're certainly seeing that personal loans have gotten a lot more popular lately. And perhaps what you described has something to do with that.
0: There've been so many things that are so unusual in the last few years. I don't need to list them all, but I think about the job that you all have at Vantage Score and wonder about how you assess the following couple of things. One is at least in the United States, you have millions of student loan debtors who have had those obligations frozen for a really long time and so that's sort of out there i don't know how you factor that in and then the other piece is this just what seems to me anyway the explosion of buy now pay later arrangements that if i understand correctly don't show up in the normal way in credit files and so i wonder how you kind of think about both of those and where they fit into this story
1: Yeah, they are both very, very relevant. Since the beginning of the pandemic, all federal student loans have been put in a deferment state. So the big question is, when these accommodations are gone, these consumers who now need to figure out another monthly payment obligation into their budget, how will they fare in that new setup? The second topic you raised about buy now, pay later loans... While absolute numbers are still small compared to other debt obligations, we all have been seeing that their use have been growing at a very, very significant rate. And the big blind spot right now, I should say, is that these loans do not get regularly reported to the consumer's credit reports. So what that means is that if you have a borrower who is a frequent user of these type of loans, when you try to assess their credit risk, the lender has a blind spot of really understanding what is the totality of the different types of obligations a consumer has. Recently, in the last, I guess, few months, we've heard The three national credit bureaus each announced their own plans with respect to how they'd like to improve the reporting of these type of accounts. And as this data becomes more available, as the bureaus start collecting this type of information on a more regular basis, certainly then all risk managers, all modeling teams will be looking for ways to incorporate this type of information more optimally into their assessments.
0: Such an interesting bundle of issues right now. And I'll, my comment on the student loan piece is that you don't have to be a political analyst to imagine that the reason the deferments will continue for a little while here is because the administration wants to figure out what they want to do on the question of loan forgiveness, you know, yes, no, how much, et cetera, And those deliberations, that they just take time. So that would be my two cents on that. Last question, Emory, for you, which is, From the lender's perspective, what should they be thinking about in terms of their portfolios? How does your analysis kind of inform how they might be thinking about their approach to the market?
1: Yeah, credit markets have been doing very well for a very long period of time. And I think we all have been anticipating or talking about an eventual credit downturn. So as risk managers, I think it's really important to really understand and pick up how these trends are evolving. All financial institutions, everyone who has a stake in this is now sharpening their pencils and getting the magnifying glasses and trying to take as close of a look to these issues as they can. And of course, there is an evolving source of new data. Our decisioning tools, thankfully, are getting better. So... It's important to leverage what is the latest and greatest information set, data set or model or tool available so that you can sort of get that extra level of accuracy or precision. But again, like monitoring and understanding the trends and being able to respond to that or take proactive actions to account for those is what we talk about when we talk about these topics with lenders.
0: Emory, that's great. I'm going to leave it there. Super interesting conversation today. And again, grateful for your time. We closed, I think, with folks sharpening their pencils and working hard to monitor the trends. And we're obviously thankful for the insights that you provided here and for the work that VantageScore does to help us better understand those trends.
1: Yeah, thank you, Dan. I enjoyed the conversation.
0: Coming right up, The Big Rethink. When the pandemic started, there was a consensus that the economy would be crushed by what was about to happen. Governments moved quickly to soften the blows that everyone knew were coming. In hindsight, that consensus was mostly an unexamined mass assumption. We were so sure of what was coming, and in many ways, we were so wrong. As Emery and I mentioned, student loan repayments in the United States have been frozen since March 2020, and they will have remained frozen for at least two and a half years, and possibly longer before repayments begin. That's $1.6 trillion in debt held by 43 million borrowers. Numbers that big are pretty meaningless to me without some context, since I have no idea what a trillion dollars looks like. So for comparison, total auto loan debt outstanding in the United States is around $1.3 trillion. So freezing student loans had a somewhat bigger impact than eliminating all auto payments in the United States for going on two and a half years now. That makes a huge difference for most families. And ending that Isn't going to feel good for most families either. Some people needed, some people definitely benefited from that relief, to be sure. But because so much of the economy was so strong through the pandemic, most of those student loan borrowers saw an increase in job security. And at least until inflation kicked in in earnest, they also saw an increase in real income. I'm not expressing a view here on the student loan question, which is very complicated. I'm just pointing out how confident everyone was back in early 2020 that certain things were going to happen, and how wrong we were on some pretty fundamental stuff in hindsight. We confidently underestimated human creativity and resiliency in the face of an onrushing pandemic. It seems to me that two years later, for what it's worth, we did the exact same thing when Russia invaded Ukraine. We assumed Russia would quickly prevail because we quite casually underestimated Ukrainians' resourcefulness. I certainly was guilty of this anyway. Assumptions are critically necessary. They're one of the core reasons our brains work so well. One of the reasons artificial intelligence is unable to replicate human common sense is because machines can't assume things at all. They only know what they know, lacking the ability to imagine something and just figure it's true. That's what we're good at. So assumptions are only a problem when we don't know we're making them, or perhaps when we just don't want to admit it. It's now so clear that we've been so wrong about so much from inflation to people's mental health to people's willingness to work at jobs they don't really like to whether people want to go back to the office or maybe whether they ever wanted to be there to begin with and on and on. We're in the middle of what I'm calling the big rethink because from my perspective, we're actively reevaluating so many foundational things that we used to know. We're starting to ask whether the things we knew were actually just things we assumed. This coming Tuesday, DCA's Financial Data Forum members are gathering for a virtual forum on best practices in data personalization, transparency, security, and interoperability. Thought leaders from five top companies in the field will discuss the consumer perspective on financial data, consumer ownership and control of financial data, the role of permission and intention in consumer data now, open banking data and cryptocurrencies, and global data standards. If you're a member of the Financial Data Forum, we'd love it if you joined us on Tuesday at 1pm Eastern on Zoom. If you're not a member of the Financial Data Forum and you're listening to this podcast, maybe you should be. You can learn more about the Digital Commerce Alliance and the Financial Data Forum by visiting our website at www.digcomall.org. For the Digital Commerce Alliance, take care of yourself and take care of each other. God bless. This is Dan Carell signing off.